Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on the My First Thousand podcast, where we talk to YouTubers about how they got started and about their journey as they've progressed through the world of filmmaking and putting themselves out in public and making things online. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. It is an absolute privilege. How are you doing? No, no worries. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I actually watched a couple episodes before and I was super surprised when I got your email. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh God, that's very intimidating. Oh God, you got me nervous now. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, but no, I think I've been having a good day so far. Um, it's like middle of the day. I just finished a class, so it's like good timing. Okay, well, hopefully we'll keep it a good day. We, we won't ruin it. <laughs> um, okay, so something that I think sets you apart immediately is you said you grew up in Shanghai, where obviously the internet's a bit different. The internet culture is going to be a different, oh, yeah. bit different. How did your kind of introduction to YouTube alter the way that you grew up with Western YouTube when you came to an American university, for example? Right. So really funny. Um, so Great Firewall of China, right? Evidently. Um, I didn't have access to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, essentially, until I was in like say like last year of middle school, early high school or something. So my first introduction was YouTube. It's in ninth grade. And that was kind of insane because all of a sudden it was like, this is a whole world out there that I've like never seen before. And funny story, I was actually on Instagram a little bit um, because it was allowed in China, I think in when I was in middle school. So 2012, 2013 ish. And then they banned it afterwards. So that was like my little window um, into that. But the reason I was introduced um, to Western media is because for school reasons, I got a VPN because I wanted to access like the New York Times and like Google and stuff. Um, so, but along with that came YouTube. And so that was kind of like my first introduction of me binge watching a lot of different like Western creators primarily. Hmm. How interesting. That early on in life, who would you say were the main people that, I, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but the main kind of styles or genres that stuck with you? Uh, a lot of PewDiePie, because I had a, I actually have a penchant for horror games, and that was a time period where he was doing a lot of like horror games run-throughs and playthroughs, and I thought that was like really entertaining, and I would just like have him on in the background um, as I just like did stuff. And this was like before Twitch, um, so that was like my main form of like background noise, like live streaming that I had. Who are the other people I watched? Oh, um, I watch a lot of. Madeline Bailey, she's like a cover singer on YouTube who was really big in that time period as well. I've actually heard a couple of her songs and her videos reposted on Billy Billy, which is like a really big kind of like YouTube site in China. Um, so I see a lot of Western creators from there um, and BuzzFeed as well reposted on that site. So when I finally had access to like the real version, original version of it, that was like immediately what I gravitated towards. How interesting. I can't help but notice there. You also mentioned um, how early on in your life you were trying to get a VPN for academic work as well as things like the New York Times and that sort of thing. That's really early on to be chasing after that sort of thing when, I don't know, I guess a lot of people probably wouldn't want it for academic reasons at that time. Like, as I say, like video games or YouTube and that sort of thing. You are immensely academic. Was this always a, a long-term thing? Um... To put it lightly. A little bit, I guess. And honestly, the reason why I kind of needed a VPN was because I started to get more into Model UN, so like Model United Nations. And one of the things about me being in the club was that we would go to the US to participate in these competitions. Like we went to like Harvard Model UN, Yale Model UN, we're in like New Haven and in um, Boston. And so in order to do research on these topics, it was just immensely difficult to do it all from like Baidu because it was like all like in Chinese and we needed to speak in English. We needed to write like English stuff and cite English sources. Um, and so I was just like, I need like 
U.S. news sources um, to do research on this kind of stuff. I think one of my topics was like child trafficking in the U.S., and I was just like, "There's no way I can do research about this from like Chinese media." Um, so I just like kind of got my mom to get me a VPN,、um, and then that's just kind of where it started. So I guess yeah, it came from academic reasons, and it definitely ended up. Being really essential for the rest of my high school life, not just for academic reasons, though, kind of for like other stuff as well. But yeah. So, how old were you then when you started traveling internationally to compete in Model UN? I think the first time was when I was fourteen.、Um, I came to when, my first place in the US was actually California, and I was here for a month. Ish for an international politics kind of like summit summer camp situation. It was at.、Um, I forgot what university,、um, but the program is called CTY Center for Talented Youth.、Um, it's it's like organized by Johns Hopkins, so that was kind of like my first introduction to like US.、Um, and then the next place I went to was like New York and then Chicago, which is where I am now.、Hmm. Was that your first time in America? The one in California, yeah. So was there was any like when I was fourteen? Where, when you were fourteen, what was there any、uh, culture shock? If you don't mind me asking, particularly in regard to media, for example.、Um, I think the first thing, and it still strikes me today, honestly, was how like political everything was. Not in terms of like conversation, but in terms of like, like for example, I could like walk into a bar or like walk into a mall or something, and there'd be like TV with like news station playing,、uh, and that wasn't something that I was very used to.、Uh, I'm also Singaporean, so I grew up in Shanghai, but like I spent a lot of time in Singapore, and both of these places are just not super.、Um, Known for that, I guess it's just like political discussion is not really integrated into like the daily fabric of something going on. Like in Singapore, you can ask someone random and just be like, "Hey, like, who is our prime minister currently?" And they'd be like, "I don't know. Is it election time yet?" Right?、Um, that's、wow. of course not true for everybody,、um, but especially when I was like fourteen, right? Like if I asked like other like fourteen-year-olds, they'd be like, "I I don't know. It, it's not super important." But I think in the U.S. when I came here, it was. Like a big like expectation for people to to know and have those sort of conversations,、um, and I got a kind of I got a pass because I was an international student. Like no one would ask me these questions, but I would be there for the conversations,、uh, and that was like super interesting. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. So when you were in,、uh, particularly in Singapore, then if the if a significant proportion of the population weren't aware of who the president. Of who the president was. Sorry, what was different? I guess about the environments that you were in that made you sort of so aware to be so aware of a what was going on politically in the country as well as other countries as well as you know getting involved in Model UN. Kind of what was different to you with your situation, if you don't mind me asking. Sure.、Um, well, first I want to clarify: it's not like the majority of the population doesn't know who the prime minister was. It's like those in my age group. So like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year olds. No, that's fine. It's just、um, I think now because I recently went back to Singapore for like a year.、Um, now when I'm like what twenty, twenty one ish, I think now my friends know a lot more evidently、um, as the conversation has kind of evolved.、Um, but I think what set me apart was I got into Model UN because I wanted to do more public speaking. The first time I've ever done any sort of public speaking was debate and this like random storytelling competition my high school did, which by the way my high school is super international.、Um, and I very quickly realized that I didn't have a Chinese accent, and I never was made aware of this growing up. Like if you could probably tell if I spoke to someone, they could probably. See that I'm not from a specific region from the U.S., but I don't think they'd be able to tell that I was I'm like Singaporean. Like I do not have like a Singlish accent,、um, and I'm not really sure when exactly that was made like clear to me. But I think just one day I realized like, oh, when I speak, 
I don't really have like a traditionally Chinese or Singlish accent. And so that kind of pushed me to do more public speaking just because I wanted to see what I could run with this and how, where I could go with this. Um, so I did like debate and then I did MUN and then I decided, you know what, I kind of want to go beyond China for model UN competitions. And so along with that came kind of my interest in just like political science in general. I am not currently a political science major, and I don't know this is something I'm going to talk about later, but I decided to like drop it. Um, but at the time, that was like definitely something I was interested in becoming. I think my dream at the time was being like a conflict reporter. So that was also part of the reason why it's like kind of academic for me. Huh. Why were you considering a, a conflict reporter, if you don't mind me asking? That's really interesting. Yeah, I've always really liked writing, journalism, um, and I also liked public speaking. And I like the idea of being able to like travel to places and being able to like think on my feet. I think I'm a decent like impromptu speaker. Um, that was kind of like my brand in debate. So I thought, oh, if I want to put all of these together and do this like multiple locations, conflict reporting seems like a great job. My mom, however, was not in support of this. Her main thing was like, you want to go to the site of the bombings or like whatever, like, you know, like terrible, violent protests or like violent like situations are happening i was just like um yeah but i mean i was also like 14 so evidently that's not my dream job anymore but at the time i was like yeah no this is like what i want to do um which looking back now i think it was like really funny and kind of endearing um but she never really restricted me she still allowed me to go on all of these competitions and stuff she was just like please be wary of your safety like we will be, we will be always concerned um which i think is really sweet Warzone's child. No, 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 not allowed. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Goddamn. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I think I, I, I am coming to a point with this. I just find it so interesting. You you don't travel internationally at the age of 14 for Model UN or debate unless you're really, really, really good at it. What kind of progressed and what made you so good at it, I guess? Um... I think partially is because while my school had a really good structure, we had a model UN team and I was really mentored by, you know, people older than me who have like done some of these before and most of them go to university in the US. So they were able to like come back, kind of talk about their experiences and just like from like me at the time, I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to kind of, you know, walk this path and see like where I can go. I would like to do this as well. So for me going like to the US or going international US or UK for university was always kind of just like set. And then for, I was like, okay, if I want to do that, I'm interested in public speaking. I'm just going to go with this route. You know, I'm just going to see what this happened. Um, especially in China at the time, just at the time, I don't think it's true now, but at the time there weren't that many people involved in like US model UN and US debate. Obviously now it's like a big, big like organization. A lot of people are doing it. But at the time when I was just entering, it wasn't that big yet. So I quickly became one of like the people, sometimes people come to for advice and stuff. And I kind of like that feeling, you know, 14 year old center retention, lots of spotlight. Um, um, people ask me like, you know, how do you do public speaking, et cetera, et cetera. And I think to answer your question, how it became kind of like good at it is partially a personality trait but partially just because like i was able to afford it too right like my family was super supportive and they like like supported me to go overseas for these things because my high school did not subsidize this um and then furthermore i had access to like a vpn which some people just don't um or can't right because you have to buy a subscription etc etc um and also because um with my personality when i pick something to do i tend to like just go in on it 
Um, and research was like really easy. I just like picked a topic that I liked and then I just like did a bunch of research on it. Um, and then I just spoke about it, which I guess I never had stage fright. I was a theater kid really early on in high school. And part of the reason was because I don't get stage fright. So I think just all of the elements just came together and I just decided to do this. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this contributes. This contributes well, essentially, to one of the main reasons people don't actually start YouTube channels. One of the reasons they're scared is they're intimidated to be on camera. They're kind of scared and can't find, find their voice and that sort of thing. So obviously that's lent itself immensely well to you in starting your YouTube channel and going down that kind of journey. Um, that was never... Yeah, that was never an issue for you, it seems, right? I think one thing I quickly... I mean, I do get nervous in front of the YouTube, especially camera, because... So, like... You put on, like, different hats, right? Like, when you're in a debate, you're, like, representing a side. When you're in Model UN, you're representing a country. Um, so you have, like, an expected way of you to act um, and, like, what is considered, like, a good delegate or, like, things that you should do. But when it comes to YouTube, it's very just, like, self-driven. It's, like, this is how you want to portray yourself. And so for me, it took a while, honestly, if you watch some of my older videos, which please don't, but if you do, you see I was definitely a lot more, like, just kind of awkward and didn't know how to act because I haven't really grown into myself yet at the time. And so I definitely didn't know how to express myself on social media to, like, people, even though no one watched my videos, but still, it was just, like, a feeling of, like, people are going to watch me and they're going to judge me and they have no idea who I am, but this is what they're going to see. Um, and now it's as I kind of grown into myself and matured a bit, I feel like that fear has definitely gone away. But I think I just want to say that, like, it's super normal for people early on, especially if you're younger, to have those concerns. Yeah, it's tough. Even if you're like have no stage fright, it's still like big self-doubt process. Mm. Well, what I liked is, um, I mean, if you don't mind me saying, but in your vlog, which seemed to be your first day of class at University of Chicago, you actually chose to vlog that, which in and of itself is quite a feat considering the amount of nerves you probably had that day and so much was going on. It's quite overwhelming. I really liked there were a lot of segments where you were vlogging and you chose to go absolutely in public with perhaps hundreds of people around you and you were vlogging and you were obviously a little bit nervous on camera. And I just think that's very reassuring to people who look up to you and perhaps want to chase a similar thing to see kind of that process of you growing. For sure. Um, I still am kind of like, Ugh, when I vlog in public, mainly because it's just very awkward, especially if you're like in a kind of enclosed space and there's other people and you're just kind of like there, like a restaurant and you're just like vlogging yourself. Um, but even more so on campus because it was this weird thing where like some people have watched my videos before just because they wanted to see like New Chicago acceptance reaction or something. So they like kind of knew who I am. So some people would be like, oh yeah, that's that YouTube girl. But then I wasn't doing this regularly enough for people to be like, oh yeah, no, like this is a super cool thing that, you know, point people to. So it's kind of the awkward period where like I wanted to make videos, but I also didn't want anyone to know about it yet. Um, and so I just kind of like powered through the vlogging. Um, looking back now, especially since now everything's remote, I really, really wish I had vlogged more on campus stuff. Um, but I just wasn't that. I was just like really shy and like didn't want to be in a situation where people would be like, wait, you're that YouTube girl. I'd be like, oh my God, that no, that I still don't really, it still makes me really nervous when people sometimes come up to me and be like, have I, have I watched your videos on YouTube before? And I'm like, yeah, poss possibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it still makes me awkward. Yeah. Oh man, I, I, you've definitely got quite a lot of comments um, I've seen like that as well, of people being like, I've seen you on campus, I didn't know whether or not to say hi, that sort of business. Yeah. <laughs> Might feel a bit um, weird, to be fair. Yeah, a little weird. 
um, but still really sweet and makes me really happy, but also a little bit like, oh no, now this person sees me in like in person. Um, I hope they're not disappointed because I'm not like XX so how I was in my videos, right? It's probably not true, but you get that sense of like nervousness. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Well, let's consider your style as a YouTuber then. As you've kind of progressed, particularly over the last three years, who would you say are the main um, YouTubers that you've looked up to in both just general motivation, like, oh, say the content they're doing, or stylistically, who do you take inspiration from, let's say? Um, I think it's odd because the people I watch don't really... The people I watch have, like, vastly different styles. Like, I don't really try to emulate their style. Um, but some people I enjoyed watching, um, I still do. Uh, Michelle Choi, she's a lot older than I am, but her, like, really peaceful, just, like, living alone diaries in New York, uh, I constantly watch those, even though, you know, her videos are more just, like, beautiful, like, cinematography, but not that much editing, and my vlogs are just more, like... A lot of text and a lot of editing um but i really enjoyed her and the fact that she's been doing these vlogs consistently for two years every single week was just insane because i could not imagine taking a camera with me on like everything i did for two weeks and like editing that like all the time because she edits her videos and that's that's that was insane to me um and another one was um this was a bit earlier on, but this was Close Encounters, who is now the wonderful Jen M on YouTube. Um, and I followed her when she had, I think, like 300k at the time, which is still like a, like a big number. But now she's at like 3 point something million. And I've really seen her like go throughout her journey. And that was also insane to watch. Yeah. And then there are some other just like college YouTubers that I also watch. Um, but it's more just like for inspiration. Like, oh, I like wonder what type of videos they're doing. Or like, I wonder what life is like. Um, but yeah, I do gravitate towards more like Asian female YouTubers just because one, I think it's more relatable. And two, it's because I do kind of want to see like, these are all the op options that like kind of open to me. Um, so in terms of like channels similar to mine, these are people I watch. So not just for like personal fun, but also for kind of like reference material, I guess. Um, but yeah. Mm. Now, it's interesting what you said um, about gravitating towards Asian uh, female YouTubers because I had a bit of an identity crisis when I noticed sub subconsciously, of course, a lot of content I was consuming was straight white dudes in college and I was like, Jesus Christ. This is a disaster. <laughs> God damn it. I think it's subconscious, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, okay, well, it's uh, interesting to hear that I. That it seems to be the case a lot across a lot of demographics anyway. Um, which is interesting. For sure. So in regard to your YouTube channel, as a direct consequence of you creating online and of your YouTube channel, have there been any completely unexpected benefits, say socially, career-wise, commercially? I think, so let's do like personal and socially first. Um, so I do model UN. I still, still do. I mean, now obviously it's remote um, and I took a gap year. Um, but before that, I remember going to some conferences and people would be like, I think when I was applying to schools, I think I might have watched your video on Chicago, And I'd be like, oh yeah, that's cool. Um, and then it's, it's just like another avenue of like, yeah, you know, now we know each other. And in Model UN, um, it's really important to just like get to know people and remember their faces and stuff. And so when you have that attached, it's just like a little extra link, right? So that's fun. Um, and some of my career advisors at school, so like at UChicago, each person is assigned to like a career advisor. Some of my career advisors would be like, I think I watch your videos online. I'd be like, okay, that's 
that's great. Um, that's wonderful. That's awesome. And I was just like, okay, we can move on. Um, but more excitedly, I think career wise, um, I've had two interesting internships ish that are kind of related to this. The first one is, so I worked an internship my first year. Um, during my school year, and it was at like this VC firm, this venture capital firm in Chicago, and I worked the internship. It was awesome. It was amazing. I moved on, but then about two months ago, I got a call from one of the partners there. Uh, sorry, one of the one of the one of the associates there who've since left. Um, but he called me and was like, "Hey, I'm at this this new company, and I think one of my interns mentioned you, and I just wanted to call and check in." And one thing led to another, and uh, ultimately, you know. I managed to reconnect with somebody just because of that, and I thought that was super cool. And I guess the most exciting thing is I mentioned YouTube as one of my like greatest achievements. You know that interview question where they're like, "What is something that you are most proud of?" Right? And instead of like saying something off of my resume that I normally would, I actually said YouTube. And afterwards, I was like, "Why? Why, Chloe? Why? Why did I do that?" Um, but I just got a call saying that I got the internship. Which is super exciting. I know. Hell yeah. This summer, that I, that's insane. So I guess they saw something in that, and the way I pitched it was very like, yeah, I grew my channel from like a very data oriented way, because that's true. I pour over the analytics too much sometimes, but I think it's just a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, unexpected benefits from my YouTube channel. There you go. <laughs> it got me a job, kind of. That's awesome. That's so cool, and it's only going to grow from there. There's a. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, how exciting. That's so cool. Well, good. Oh, that's awesome to hear. That's really awesome to hear. So, yeah. Anyone listening who, who you know, wants to go get a big job, here is the shortcut, you know? Get a YouTube channel. Grow it. Let's talk about how you grow it. <laughs> Analytics. Data science. Yeah. Uh, I actually had a data question science. about data science for later, but we'll do it now, I guess, which is how sure. have you interpreted your kind of experience in uh, economics and data science to your analytics in order to I guess, learn more about your channel. Have you applied them to your growth strategies, that sort of thing? Have you used that data? A little bit. Um, so I use this thing called, I forget the exact website, but it's something really, I think it's called Screaming Frog. I think it's called Screaming Frog. Um, but it's essentially like a web scraper that allows you to scrape your, your the video your video data. So it put in my video URLs. It generates for me a bunch of like user data, viewer data, and then you scrape it, you put it into an Excel sheet, and then I can do whatever I want with the data, right? Um, so I'm economics specialization in business, data science minor in Chicago. So basically what I've done with it is the main things I look at are like one, traffic sources, like where are people watching my videos, and two, how long they're watching my videos for. Um, and in some cases, which countries, like which demographics watch some of my videos more than other videos? Because I thought that was just like super interesting. Some of the answers were pretty obvious, like more people from the UK watch my Oxford PPE videos be just because Oxford's in the UK, right? Um, but funnily enough, a lot of like Singaporeans um, and Indians also watch just like my YouTube, my videos in general. And sometimes I ask myself like, like how do they know? Like why do they click? Like it's not super apparent on my channel that I'm Singaporean. So like how did this, how did this happen, right? So sometimes I do that. Um, but mainly I think watch time is like the one that's like most useful to me. So in the beginning, I'd be like, oh, people click off my videos on like these specific timestamps. Um, most of them at like two minutes, 30 seconds. And then later on, I think at like 
five minutes something and I was like why is that so I go back and watch the video and be like oh like these would be cases where like I switched the screen or like the transition wasn't super interesting and people just stopped watching for a set for some reason um so I just kind of experimented with like pushing the watch time a little further further so I think I'm at like five minutes something now um which I think is like fine um so I guess that's a way that I've kind of integrated data science into my channel growth um but my recent growth, honestly, was not related to data science at all. Um, the only thing I do consistently is I publish my videos at 10 a.m. if I can. And that's because 10 a.m. is like my highest traffic source. Most people who watch my videos are on YouTube at 10 a.m. So that's when I do that. Mm. When you say uh, growing to five minutes in terms of retention, is that, say, a certain percentage of the audience is still watching at five minutes? Uh, yeah. So... Five minutes is when like most people click off my videos and not most people, but like a certain percentage of people click off my videos and a lot of them do finish the video all the way through. But I was just wondering like, why would they click off at like the specific time period, right? I mean, it could be something completely random. Maybe they got a notification or call or they just want to stop watching. But if it's something that I can fix on my end um, to you know, get them more interested, then like that's what I'll do, which is what I've been kind of experimenting with recently with my new vlog style kind of, um, where I have like shorter clips of something. And if I do have longer clips, I have like subtitles, captions, um, and some like fun animation stuff potentially, um, just to kind of keep people interested and also to keep me interested because I have a very short attention span uh, or like bandwidth I allocate to YouTube videos. Um, like I get bored very quickly and my friends will tell you this, but when I watch a movie, it's it's really bad because if I get bored or if I've watched this movie before, I will be the bitch who like will skip sometimes. Um, it's really bad, right? It also applies to like anime or like podcasts and stuff. Like if I, if I think something's going on that I think I know what's happening, I'll put it on like 1.5 or 1.75 and they'll be like, what are you doing? I'll be like, I want to know what happens. Um, so for me, I just make my videos entertaining enough for me so that I will sit and watch the whole thing through. And I think like, that's fine. That's my bar mark. Yeah. God, that's hilarious. Aaron Paul is sobbing. He, uh, he did a massive rant about how people should not, should, uh, should not fast forward things. Made him cry. I... Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Like, I know it's a bad habit. And I do watch calming videos that I will, like, put in the background. But I will not be able to, like, devote my full attention to something um, if it's, like, a bit more drawn out. I will usually multitask and, like, do something else. Then I can put it on for a while. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do agree, though. I think fast-forwarding in a lot of cases, particularly to do with podcasts or, say, say um, YouTube videos or that sort of thing, tends to be a good idea, particularly when you seem to be the kind of person who's consuming so much information, not just in regard to entertainment pieces, but also information and research, considering uh, your jobs. Um, and when you said the bandwidth that you allocate to YouTube, you also have a wide variety of side hustles going concurrently, as well as your studies at UChicago, right? Yeah, um, the one that make, got me viral was apparently my tutoring job. So I tutor kids on the side. I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, and yeah, this is something that I'm like very comfortable in my routine because I've been doing it since high school, basically. Uh, and I allocate just like 10 hours a week to that. And when I'm in that space, that's all I think about. And I don't multitask during that time period. And that's like my bandwidth for that. It's like 10 hours maximum. Um, and then I like figure out what I want to do and who I want to teach in that time period. So yeah, um, my YouTube bandwidth is honestly not super high now that I don't know if this is like true for other creators, but as I've been working on my channel more, I've been watching other YouTube videos less. Um, just because so much of my life is spent like editing, 
filming videos and then like publishing them that after I publish them, sometimes when I watch other people's videos, I'd be like, oh, wait, that's such a smart idea. Like, why didn't I do that? Or like, wait, did I, did I mess up something in my last video? And then it just becomes like a work mode. It's actually more difficult for me to consume YouTube casually now that I actually make YouTube videos. Cause I'll be like, oh wait, that what that person just did. That's a cool camera angle. Maybe I can do that. And I'm like, wait, no, I'm supposed to be on break right now. I just uploaded a video. What am I doing? Um, that just might be me. Um, but that's why I said that like my bandwidth of YouTube has kind of like shrunk as I've made more videos, which I think is really funny. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. I think, would you say it's accurate that it probably earlier on when you started, each video probably took more time as you were getting to grips with all the production uh, aspects and editing and all those kind of workflows? Whereas you're a bit quicker at it now, is that accurate to say? Or No, I don't know if this is true for other people as well, but for me, it's the exact opposite. Because earlier on, one, because I made more sit-down videos in the beginning, not that many vlogs, so sit-down videos are just easier to edit. And also because I didn't really invest that much time into YouTube. I edited it on my phone. Um, I filmed with my phone, edited it on my phone. Yeah. Using Villa. This wow. is for like my first, yeah, I hit 7k, 10k or something before I even got a camera. So everything was done like on my phone. <laughs> I know even now I vlog mainly on my phone but I, and now I edit on like Final Cut Pro. Right. But like I edit it exclusively on my phone. So it would like took me very short amounts of time. And I just like leave my phone there and like let it upload for like at the time it took like 10 hours or 12 hours or something because remember i was using vpn to upload in china to like youtube it's just it was a whole mess and if i found something mystic i had to delete and redo that like 12 hour process um so now yes the uploading is faster um the editing however has gotten a lot slower because i'm starting to want to put more just like stuff in my videos. Um, I mentioned this in one of my videos, but I'm also a redrawer for like a manga. I can't tell you which webtoon or manga it is, but I basically clean the SFX and I draw. So I'm like a little do like little creative stuff on the side. And as a result of that, my like eyes have just been like really just like anal about picking out any like ugly things in my videos and in my thumbnails. So as a result, I've been just like spending more time on those things, just like cleaning them to make sure they're like pretty and like aesthetic and if a word is like off-centered, I'd be very annoyed. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at currently. <laughs> it's taking me longer to edit my videos, but I'm having more fun with it. So I think that's good. Mm, that sounds like a really good thing. Um, for sure, because I think a lot of YouTubers have spoken about when they stopped enjoying the process, it became obvious in their work retrospectively when they yeah. talked about it. And certainly as an audience, you can, uh, you can kind of tell. Um, I think your new vlogs are awesome. I think they're really good fun. Like the, the editing yeah. style and the way that you um, both kind of voice it as you film it, but also you add kind of a, I guess, a subconscious voice in the edit post, like with text on screen. That's really interesting. There's, I don't know, there's a couple of things about that. One is how it, I guess adds more context to what's going on and tells more of a story so we're more involved but i also worry that you're you tend to be quite self-critical in a lot of the ways that you use them so like say it's say you're showing the beautiful sunset or you know outside or the big windows of chicago you're like oh no one wants to see this or, or like shut up and it's like no this is cool we like this this is why we watch you know what i mean so i don't know um yeah, uh, yeah. it seems to be i don't know if you agree with that or uh, no, for sure. Um, this is more like me in retrospect, but I 
this is a bit personal, but I, I, for some reason, I do have like a lower self-esteem and like a slight inferiority complex, and I don't know why. It's very odd. It's like I'll be watching other people's like YouTube videos, or just not just like for YouTube, but it applies to like every aspect of my life. Even when I was like, for example, like debating or like like doing like activities, I'll look up to all of these people. I'll be like, oh my god, they like did such an amazing job. Like I wish I could be like them. Like why am I like not like this is all the ways I can improve myself. But then when you look at it objectively, it's like I'm not that far off, or we're just like really different styles um, and there's no reason why I would view myself as like being worse but I just kind of do and I don't know it really shows when I'm editing because I'll be watching myself on screen and I'll be like why am I so dumb why am I like no one wants to watch this like why am I doing this um, and sometimes I'll just like voice that out and put that on the screen right and that's just like reflects two parts of me one is like the excited one who's like filming all of this and one's like the slightly more critical one who's like watching this video and editing it um, so I try to show both of those in my vlogs but I do notice that I, I tend to self-criticize a lot and that's something that I want to fix but also don't think that there's an easy way to do that and like another way this is funny this is, this is like kind of, kind of funny I don't want this to sound out too conceited but sometimes I'll be watching like smaller creators because I do love that I love supporting smaller creators I follow I think a majority of people I follow are like under 10k or they used to be under 10k some of them um, and I watch the Thank videos you. and be like oh my god that's such a good uh, that's such a good engagement like that's so many views like one day I wish I could get that to that many views and I'm like hold on wait a minute, I think I do have that many views, but I don't realize it at the moment. I think to myself like, oh yeah, I constantly need to improve and like go bigger and do more, which kind of makes me concerned because sometimes I feel like, oh wait, maybe I'm not taking what I have, like I'm not being grateful enough. But then on the other hand, I, I am. I honestly can't believe so many people follow me and watch me and that's like insane to me. Um, so yeah, one day I gotta write a note to myself and just be like, have more confidence. <laughs> um, but yeah. Earlier on, you mentioned one particular video, which is currently at 650,000 views. Let's, yeah. let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about that. Because there's a lot to say there. What sure. hell of a video? <laughs> um, it was really odd, actually. I was having this conversation with my friend who I asked my friends for a lot of advice. I'm like, should I publish this video? Like, is this cringe? Is like the question I'll ask. I'll be like, hey, I have this video in mind. Is this cringe? Like, is this okay? So this video, they were like, no, it's cringe. It's not cringe. But should you publish it now? Like, would people be interested enough in it? I'm like, I don't know. I've never talked about like my side hustles before. I've only mentioned it in passing. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like film it and give it a shot. So I sat down like right over there in this area and I just filmed for about like 40 minutes and then I finished it and I was like this is incredibly boring this is just me sitting down talking about like how I make money um and there's like no editing there's like I didn't do anything fun it's like not one of those like I tried drop shipping and I made fifty thousand dollars a month kind of videos as so I was like I don't think anyone's gonna watch this publish well, it well we've got too many of them Anyways, we got too many of them yeah um and it was doing quite normally for the first two, three days, I think. I, you know, I get around um, like 5,000, 6,000 views in this time period. So I was like, okay, it's doing solid. And then all of a sudden, my friend was like, Chloe, your video's at 70K. I was like, what? And then it just didn't stop. And now it's at 600, which is insane. Um, it like doubled my revenue for like my entire channel, which I was like, I see why people talk about finance stuff now. Um, my CPM, RPM, which is like amount of money you make per thousand views, is like a lot higher here, which is concerning because it's not something that I want to keep pushing my channel towards. Um, 
because I've never been really in it for the money. Like, as I've mentioned before, I have done zero sponsorships on this channel, um, like zero collabs, zero product mentions, zero sponsorships. So it was like interesting to know. Um, and maybe in the future, when I do get more interested in finance, I'll gear it a bit more in this direction. Um, but I don't know how it got to 600K. That was insane. Like Kelly Stamps commented on my video. What? I watch her videos so, that's, that's insane. Yeah. She didn't just comment, she also described you as a role model. I know. I was like, the first thing I thought of was like, well, that's just wrong. She didn't see the, like, I, I just went all imposter syndrome on myself. But then, objectively speaking, Kelly Stamps called me a role model. Like, it's like, I want, I want to put on my resume. Like, hello. You should. Hire me. Look at that. Kelly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, I think the um, the role model comment is so interesting in regard to that precise thumbnail and the content, not the content, sorry, the way in which you make money in regard to tutoring and directly helping others with none of the dropshipping nonsense, none, none of the um, ad revenue or the stereotypical YouTube kind of almost, I don't know, like hacky, flexy kind of BS ways. Like you actually do a genuine workflow yeah. and you went on to explain it and even hold up a sheet of your lesson plans. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what was so I inspiring think... about it is, is yeah, in the realm of which you described, there are so many similar other videos. You were just cutting straight yeah. through all the nonsense and uh, showing a very clear, active way of how you were doing it. And so I think people responded well to that. Thank you. Yeah, I think, well, honestly, from a personal standpoint, like I would love ways to, to make passive income like that'd be great because right now this is still very much like active income i would love a way to do that but i do think fundamentally like people who are able to make passive income there's a very high like threshold there like you either have to have like a lot of social media following to be able to do that or a lot of just like capital to start with so you can live off of like dividends and like investments and stuff but you need that like pool of something to kind of get started right and i'm not saying that's not the case for tuition or tutoring because that is right you gotta have like good grades you gotta like study um and to make the amount of money i do you have to like do this consistently for like many years so there is like a bar mark there but i personally do feel like it's a bit more reachable than having like three hundred thousand followers on instagram or something like that um so that's kind of the, the vibe i wanted to go with for the video and i'm super surprised but also really happy that the community kind of responded positively to that that made me happy yeah <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's very exciting to hear. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll get on to the uh, investment stuff in just a moment, because that's actually very exciting to talk about. Um, but I think the last thing was also, it was uh, was it uh, Damon Dominique also commented in regards to the cinematography yes. and the lighting. So can we just ask, how the hell did you light that shot? Because it was beautiful. It was beautiful. How did you manage that? Um, I don't own any lights. I have a very, I have a very, I have a very minimal setup, guys. Like, this is my entire setup right here, right? Okay, I have one camera. I mean, it's an awesome camera. I love the camera. It was given to me, amazing camera. Um, I have one lens, one mic, and this one, like, $50 tripod I got from Amazon. And my phone. My phone's very solid, though. Um, but I don't own any lights. Um, and so the way I let that shot was I got my friend's phone. And they happened to be downtown, so I was like, let me borrow your phone for like an hour. So I grabbed this phone and I put it on like a tripod and I just like lit my face and like half of my background and that was it. The rest of it was like me kind of in post color grading it so that the background was fine and then masking my face a little bit to make it a little bit brighter. Uh, but I also filmed it at I think like 5, 6 p.m. 
Um, cause I think sunset in Chicago or like golden hour is at 7.30 ish. So that time period was like when there was no more sunlight in my region to like bright on the buildings. So it wasn't in the morning. Um, and so with the added bit of light, it was fine. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly don't think I deserve that comment because it was really just like by chance. And I think it was just like good timing because I didn't do anything fancy with like the lights. I don't own you any lights. You stealing light, your so friend's phone and setting up, uh, up as a light is not by chance. You color graded it, <laughs> not by chance. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The col- I think the color grading helps my videos the most. Um, so that is one thing that I think like, yeah, color grading, super important. Um, and the lighting on my face was something I learned from... I think like Daniel Schiffer, who I also love because I really like cinematography and photography just like as a hobby. Um, so yeah, that's just fun. Oh, I do want to well. upgrade my setup though at some point. <laughs> I do want to get like a light. Oh, okay. Like, so what, yeah, okay. What hardware things are you considering about upgrading uh, as well as lights, that sort of thing? Uh, I'm going to be moving out of this apartment soon, but there's no! been a lot of background noise. I know, I know, it's gorgeous. I really want it, but I cannot afford summer rent in this apartment. I, I'm like the, the price I'm living at currently is like solid. I'm fine with it, but in the summer they're doubling the rent for this apartment, and I was like, I I can't pay double. Like I that's just way too much, right? Um, so I'm moving out. I'm going back to Hyde Park also because school is becoming in person again next fall. So I do want to be like close to campus, you know, to go to class. Otherwise, if I'm downtown, I would just never go to class, especially since I can't drive. Not an option for me to drive down to, to drive down to campus. So I am moving out of this apartment. Very sad. But this apartment is also very noisy. Like there's a train right along this area that you can hear in my videos. So the good thing about going back to Hyde Park is that there's nothing there. So it's very quiet. Um, so I was thinking of upgrading my microphone. I actually recently did. I recently, I usually have no mic, um, but I recently, just like my phone mic. And recently I got this like DDD4, which I really like. Um, I'm thinking of getting a light. Ideally, like a softbox diffused light. That's my like next upgrade. Mm. Okay, yeah. exciting stuff. That sounds very good fun. Um, in regard to moving and going back to in-person teaching then, some of your earlier vlogs on campus, you had a lot of your friends and there was obviously a bit more, um, let's say, action there. It was, it was nice, I guess. It's always nice to see friends, like actual real people um, interact normally yeah. on camera without kind of freaking out and being like, why are you pointing your camera at me? That sort of business. So I think that was something that was really exciting and quite pleasant about your earlier vlogs. You've made a comment which was you believe that people are a product of their environments in a lot of ways. You did that in your gap year video. How have you adjusted, I guess, to obviously living alone, the pandemic, being in isolation? Has that affected your YouTube workflow at all? In what ways are you excited to be back with other people? I think one thing I really like about living alone, and this is something I touched on in my like five stages of a gap year video, which is like, I, I'm going to say it's a little bit cringe, but honestly, it was it's very dear to my heart because it's very like emotional and kind of reflects what I learned about myself. Um, but what I learned about myself is I would like to take charge of my time. And I'm actually, I don't actually crave for big human interactions that much. So I've actually been doing fine in this pandemic. Isolation, like being by myself all the time, was like kind of hard to get used to in the beginning. But I definitely don't feel that way right now living alone because like everyone's out and about. If I go and like get a coffee on the streets there's like people albeit with masks but like there's people around um so i think i'm fine regards to that uh, i'm excited to go back to in-person classes just because i would like to be able to schedule stuff with friends a bit more casually right now i've been doing it like 
a week in advance, like, let's go to this place at, like, this time and both meet there at, like, whatever, because we're so far apart. So in the future, I'll just be like, hey, I'm free for an hour. You want to go grab lunch or you want to come over to my apartment or something like that. And I'm really looking forward to that sort of, like, casual, like, more organic stuff. Um, and the vlogs, too. Would love to vlog on campus more when we can actually go inside buildings. Now that's not a thing. Um, but I think living in isolation has allowed me to kind of take charge of my own time. Like I can allocate time, say like this weekend, this Saturday, I want to meet up with my friends. After that, though, I have like personal time, um, say after like 8 p.m., I need to like tutor kids uh, or on Sunday, I can have like my morning to myself. I'll just go up to my like roof deck and just like chill by the pool, which is open now and it's amazing. Um, but yeah, so I can very clearly define like this is my time and this is like other like time I spend with other people. And when I go back, I'm a little worried that I will overwhelm myself. Um, but now that I'm a bit more self-aware about it, I think I'll be OK. Yeah health hmm. okay well that, that just sounds all very pl that sounds really good and uh, i'm glad that i guess you got steps in place and things to go back to which um after this pandemic because it's been a hellish year uh, for everyone left right and center yeah. oh god right okay <laughs> so <laughs> we spoke um about education how your work is helping other people and you've also delivered i think even back uh, a couple of years ago now you actually uh, rejected university of, uh, of oxford as many people do uh, and you even delivered kind of stand-up classes to camera um helping people with their entrance exams to the university of oxford so obviously you've been into this teaching thing a long time right and helping other people mm -hmm. for sure i thought it was really important i also just got tired of people sending me a lot of emails about like hi can you please answer my questions on how you got in and i'm like you know what i'm just gonna answer it all in a video and you guys can all just watch that video. And I don't have to type up like an answer to each email anymore, which was a thing I did a long, long time ago. So yeah. Yeah. Well, let's actually talk about how generous that is of you to actually take up a significant amount of your time to answer each of these emails, helping people in their entrance exams, which is no small feat, considering you were also tutoring at the time as well. So that's very generous of you. Let's just make that very clear. But the reason I'm asking is you've got a startup at the moment in this space, haven't you? I am working on something, yes. It's, I've actually been working on this. I started working on this last summer, um, but then I was probably overly ambitious. And the reason why it got completely paused was because um, I hired a web designer who then was impacted by COVID very heavily. And that was just like very unfortunate, very tragic, of course. And I paid him for his time, but then the project was just stopped. And so I'm kind of restarting it again. And the reason why it's taking so long is because I don't want to launch just like this ex-college YouTuber, like you can pay ex-college YouTuber to like edit your essay. Like, I don't want that. Also, I don't want to add more work onto myself. Um, so I'm trying to find a way in which I can kind of change the college consulting space. Very ambitious of me, but I kind of want to change the college consulting space to make it cheap but still get like high quality work. So I'm looking into like some avenues to do that. I'm considering like maybe nonprofit or maybe getting like some like angel investors or something to make the service as like cheap as possible for most people to kind of use. Cause I really don't think it should be that big of a deal. Like if I, I, don't, I don't, shouldn't want, I shouldn't have to pay like $200 to someone to edit my essay. It's literally just a look over and like 30 minutes of their time. Like, like it, 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 there should not be such a high barrier to asymmetry of information. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so that's why I did like um, what I call like CRL college review live, where I just opened up a jot form, people send in their college profiles and I just go over them five minutes each on camera. And I went through as many as I could um, until I just like couldn't film them anymore. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's the kind of ideology I want to apply to my startup. Um, 
when it hopefully does launch this summer because I am working on it. But as I said, I also have an internship now, so it's it's a bit it's a it's a weird time for me. It's like, do I take this internship? Do I work on my startup? I'm not too sure. So I don't have an answer to that. Hmm. Well, I I remember watching um quite a bit of that uh, live stream uh, after the fact, of course, and skipping through it. I was like, yeah, I was Jesus Christ. The things you were saying would. I was just very shaken, I guess. <laughs> um, the things you were saying were just wow. So your your next side hustle, sorry, was you're currently writing a book, right? I am currently writing a book. I'm about seventy five percent through. I'm almost done. And it's oh, when it gets published, it might it might cause some interesting reactions from U Chicago community or college student community in general. <gasps> if it gets published, the question now is like, do I want to self publish it or do I want to? go through the process of attempting to find an editor and attempting to find a publisher and and that whole big lengthy process. So I'm not too sure about that yet, but my priority now is getting the manuscript done. Um, it is a contemporary adult fiction and it does take place at UChicago. And yes, it centers around UChicago students. So that's what it's about. Not gonna say more, but I might be reading the first chapter or like the first like prologue when I hit 50k that's like a possibility that's up in the air right now so I guess if you're interested if I hit 50k by the point you can go check out that video but yeah oh that's really exciting um okay so interesting one that it's gonna as you say might make make some waves with University of Chicago students a little bit yeah all right well uh, excited to hear more which um contemporary authors then do particularly inspire you in this kind of genre because there's quite a few really significant ones going around at the moment yeah i think so um i've kind of been out of touch with like book reading just like recently um but during the pandemic i was reading a lot more and i think one of the ones that really shook me was a little life and i think that book kind of gets to everybody um I forgot the author's name. I'm just going to look that up really quickly. Um, but it's a book that I think is really famous for being... Ah, yeah. Hanya uh, Yanagihara. It's a very deeply... I don't know. Not a lot of things make me cry. That book made me cry. So if you haven't read it, it's, it's kind of hefty. It's kind of a thick boy. Um, but... I would highly recommend it. And after reading that book, I kind of felt like, wow, I would love to create a piece of work that could move someone, not even to that extent, but just like, you know, move someone and tell a side or two sides of a story, um, which is kind of hopefully what I've been doing. Um, but another author I think I get a lot of inspiration from, just like in terms of writing style and like the topic, was Celeste Ning. Uh, and she wrote uh, Little Fires Everywhere. And she wrote um, Everything I Never Told You. Both of them are solid books. I prefer the latter a little bit more. Everything I Never Told You is one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like people I've been reading recently. Um, not really for, for fun. For fun. Uh, it's not really for fun. Um, but I recently read Immortality, the Milan Kundera, one of my all-time favorite authors. It's always interesting reading his books. A bit of a mind warp, but still lots of fun. Okay, so the, the last two things that um, I was going to ask you about were uh, briefly economics and also the hustle culture that you mentioned in your gap year. So I guess we'll start with as... Actually, which did you prefer with? Which would you prefer to start with, actually? Um, let's do economics first. I just feel like it's a little more self-contained. Okay, I like that. Um, so economics, as you said, um, you need a lot of capital. Uh, in the first place to get started unless you are a filthy degenerate who hops on early to the crypto <laughs> cryptocurrency trends which you were actually in pretty early right i was 
What was that I journey like? I a little bit too early. Um, very, very quick, very impulsive, very like Gen Z decision making. But um, so, <laughs> as I mentioned in my, as I mentioned in my like how I make X amount of money um, tutoring video, all of the money I don't see. None of it goes into my bank account. I don't see any of the money, right? So I've been just accumulating this amount for like many years, and it's just been going to like another situ- like another account, my mom's, who I like don't touch at all. Um, so I was like thinking on my gap year, like. I wonder how much money is in there. So I just called her one day and be like, hey, just curious. Can you give me like a, a range, like a conservative range? And she told me, I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna do something with this. And so I just looked online and I was been always kind of interested in crypto. Like I read Blockchain Revolution when it was published a while ago. And I was like, this is a lot of fun. Don't have enough money to go into it though. And I always kind of told myself that until my gap year. And I was like, wait a minute. Actually, I think I do. Um, and so I just made an impulse purchase on... I remember the exact date. I remember I made it on November 25th, 2020. That was like uh, late-ish last year. And I bought a couple thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And just on like CoinHako, which is like the thing in Singapore. And um, I just held it and didn't touch it. And then I sold it recently. Um, And well, a little bit before recently, recently. Um, But yeah, it was interesting. that, that's basically my experience. It's very straightforward. Um, I basically watched a couple of videos on it, mainly Ali Abdal, um, and uh, a little bit of Graham Stephan, a little bit of Brian Jung, a little bit of Andre Jeek. Um, and I was like, this seems interesting. Here are some interesting platforms. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna dive in. Um, and that's just kind of how I ended up. Yeah. Money printing go brewer. It's kind of insane. Um, I think, I don't know. I, I think, honestly, I don't know if you asked this, but one of my money, in, like one of my big investment mistakes recently um, would be I got into NFTs early this year, which I know, I know, I don't know what on earth, but one of the artists I really liked published an NFT and I was like, this is interesting. And then that was like shortly before um, people did his massive, you know, 69 million something auction at Sotheby's or something. And I was like, what is this? Delved into it, went deep in for like a solid week, um, learned all about it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy a little bit of it and see what happens. So I did that and I like bought some, sold some, held some. And then I still am currently holding, I think like two, two last pieces. Um, and it's a bad market right now. And I don't think I'm ever going to get my money back on these two. So I think I'm just going to keep it as like investment mistake I made. So I probably lost like $3,000 on those two in total, um, which really sucks. But hey, you know, it, it has to happen. It's painful that it's kind of an impulsive decision, but I think it was a good learning experience and I don't intend on going into the space anymore. But yeah, that was my experiment little detour. Crypto. Oh, it's a fun one. Well, it's interesting to hear. And also it's, um, you know, in terms of, as we said, inspirational, it's sitting at home, you learn about crypto, you apply it. Like, it's all good fun. Um, you know, investment used to be a thing that only old people did, right? Whereas now, obviously, it's completely different. So it's exciting that younger and younger people are, you know, learning about these things. Um, okay, lastly, your video, your five stages of the gap year video was really interesting because it was a lot more, say, arty and um, uh, introspective than, let's say, rather than compared to a lot of uh, factual and informative educational content that you were doing beforehand. Um, can you tell us a bit of a, a bit of the story behind that and why you made that video? So this video is actually kind of like 
a sequel to another video I made, and there's no way you would have known about it, which is fine. Um, but I think it was early 2020, I want to say May-ish, I published a video that just had three emojis on it um, that I called Grape Juice Talks, kind of like in reference to uh, Damon Dominique's Red Wine Talks, but evidently underage couldn't drink. Um, so I called them grape, uh, grape Juice Talks, and I wrote, like, quote, like, deleting after 24 hours. That video is currently gone. What that video was was me with the camera on my phone and just me talking about, like, my emotional state and, like, how where I was at, all my insecurities I had right before going on this gap year. Um, and it was like, zero editing. I didn't even watch the video through. Um, I just, like, filmed it and then directly uploaded it to YouTube. Um, and I had that up for 24 hours, and then now it's gone, right? But in my in my gap year video that is very much in like very emotionally linked to some of the questions I posed and some of the emotional links I had in that video because that video was more like me being really anxious and concerned and like really upset that like hey I'm gonna go to this country for like a couple like a lot of months and not gonna be able to see anyone and I'll be completely by myself like what the hell am I gonna do um so my gap year video was kind of like a response to that um to kind of give people a peace of mind so I'm happy that now more people are watching it but it was primarily made kind of in response to that one and I do intend on publishing some videos like that in the future um and then deleting them after 24 hours because it's something that I want to discuss but it's not something I necessarily want to keep up because the way YouTube algorithm works is if someone watches this video like five months later um I could be in a very different mental state then than I am now. So I kind of wanted to be like a hallmark to update my followers in this time period. This is how I feel, but not keep it up all the time. So my gap year video was more something that I do want to keep up because I think it's something that a lot of people potentially could relate to, um, which is kind of showing like the underbelly of like doing a gap year, right? Because I see a lot of glorified, like, this is all the fun things you can do in a gap year. But then to me, after actually going on one, especially during the pandemic, it was like, there are a lot of things that you just deal with on a daily basis that you're just never really there. Um, like, yes, I was still doing fun things, but something at the back of my mind was always like, am I, is this correct? Should I be doing this? Like, am I wrong? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. And including the hustle period where I just like worked a lot kind of in response to that, because I was really guilty um, for taking this gap year. But yeah. There was definitely things in that video which uh, could be a cause for concern, that sort of thing. So I hope you're doing better now. Uh, how are you feeling now in comparison to where, where you were when you made that video? Uh, a lot better. I think one of the things, one of the reasons why, I mean, I talk, I'm, I, I talk openly about like my insomnia, anxiety, etc. Um, but I don't really view it as like a problem. Does that make sense? Like, I don't really view it as, like, something I need to receive, like, treatment for. Um, it's also because I'm very active in, like, keeping myself okay and I have all of these different, like, metrics that I kind of have with myself and check-ins I have with different people and my family. So I have a very well-established support system. But the problem with my gap year was just because I was suddenly physically not in the same place as them and I had the ability to, like, shut everything out. And I kind of did. Um, and so looking back now, I'm in a situation where I'm a lot more comfortable talking to these people. And also now that I have that gap year video up, it kind of fast forward the process where no one would really ask me like how you feel in my gap year. If they watch the video, they would kind of understand how that process was. So yeah, I think right now I'm actually probably the healthiest mentally I've been um, in like a really long time. Just because I'm like in a city that I'm really excited about, friends, I have a YouTube channel that like somehow is like doing really well. Um, I'm being interviewed, right? Um, a lot of exciting things are happening. Um, but at the same time, I also feel really like secure because I am like, you know, living alone, have my own pace. And 
yeah, a lot of things are just kind of falling into place right now. Um, I just declared my major the other day. I got hired this summer, right? Like small things are just kind of happening and that's making me like incredibly happy. So. Awesome. Making waves. Well, can't wait to see where you go next. Um, this is so exciting. Awesome. Well, Chloe, I think we'll finish it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. And yeah, we can't wait to hear and see what your next steps are. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tom. I really like this channel. I think it's super meaningful to interview people and kind of serve as a reminder of like, this is how I felt. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on. And I guess I'll see you guys on YouTube.